0: Acts chapter 7, beginning in verse 54, reading through chapter 8, verse 3, and because this is the word of God and you are the people of God on the Lord's day, would you please stand? If you are able, I should add. Acts 7, beginning in verse 54, Luke wrote as he was carried along by the Spirit of God these words. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at, them, at him. rather. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he, that is Stephen, said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man, And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God, church family, remains forever. You may be seated. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The influential 20th century Lutheran pastor summarized what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ with these famous words. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it may be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery And go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ. The death of the old man at his call. Following Jesus Christ, church family, is costly. It's costly. Jesus summarized what it means to follow him in this way. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. By the way, a cross meant one thing in the first century. It meant death. He goes on to say in Luke 9 verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. In Acts chapter 7 Beginning in verse 54, through Acts chapter 8, verse 3, the Spirit provides us with a model for discipleship, a kind of paradigm for what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit does this through an early Christian and one of the first deacons with the name Stephen. Stephen is the paradigm for what it means to follow Jesus Christ in our text this morning. And he became... As we read just a moment ago, the very first Christian martyr after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension. In the example of Stephen, we learn that following Jesus Christ includes the willingness to suffer and even die for Christ's sake. That's what it means to follow Christ. It means to die. Just as Bonhoeffer summarized, as I mentioned a moment ago, in the cost of discipleship, and as Jesus, of course, declared in Luke chapter 9, we see right here in our text, following Jesus Christ means dying. Now, we're going to unpack the nature of Christian discipleship in our text this morning by asking and answering a single question. So, one question this morning, however, three answers to the question, all right? See how we're doing that? We're going to get to three somehow, some way. And these three answers, of course, surface from within the text. But here's the question. You can jot this down if you're taking notes. Why should we willingly suffer for Christ? Why should we willingly suffer for Jesus Christ? And this is, by the way, a great question to ask if you're considering Christianity. Because the call to follow Jesus Christ is indeed a costly call. Now, of course, we recognize that Jesus Christ paid it all, as we sing, right? But because he paid it all, all to him we owe. So we're going to talk about this. Why should, why should we willingly suffer for Christ? And I mentioned to you we're going to give three answers. What I'll do right now is I'll give you all three of those answers, all right? I'm going to give you the entire roadmap. We're going to make this incredibly easy for you this morning the entire roadmap for the sermon so you can jot these down again if you're taking notes here are the three answers that surface in the text why should we willingly suffer for Christ first in our suffering we see Christ that's why we should suffer willingly for Christ because in our suffering we are privileged to see Christ second reason we find in the text that we should willingly suffer for Christ is in our suffering we Imitate Christ. We imitate Christ. So first, in our suffering, we see Christ. Second, in our suffering, we imitate Christ. And then third, in our suffering, we spread the word of Christ. And this is a glorious conclusion that we'll find in Acts 8, verses 1 through 3. In our suffering, we actually spread the word of Christ. Younger worshipers, so our our children in the room, As you follow along this morning in the text, I want you to look for a couple of items in addition to that broader outline we just gave, okay? So these are just, these are two items you can look for as we're working through this text. We want to encourage our children to be in the word of God with us. And so I can't say this enough or too frequently, parents, grandparents, feel free to have conversations with your younger worshiper throughout the sermon. Feel free to do that. Here are the two things I want you to be looking for, younger worshiper. First of all, what does Stephen see just before he dies? What does he see in the text? So we're going to be walking through these few verses, and I want you to pay close attention to this. Just before this man named Stephen dies for Jesus Christ, he sees something. What does he see? And the second thing I want you to look for this morning In the text, is what is Stephen's final prayer? There are a couple of ways he prays right before he dies. What is his final prayer? Because, younger worshiper, that tells us something about what it means to follow Jesus as well. So, what does he see, and what is his final prayer? So parents, grandparents, feel free to use these later even as you interact with your children throughout the rest of the day concerning what God has spoken to us in his word this Lord's Day morning. Well, let's begin with the first answer to the broader question, why should we willingly suffer for Christ? And I've already mentioned it to you. The first answer is this, and then we'll unpack it. In our suffering, we see Christ. We see Christ. Look with me, if you would, down at the text, chapter 7, verses 54, 55, and 56. Now, when they heard these things, that is, when the the Jewish council, the Jewish leaders, when they heard these things that Stephen had spoken, they were enraged. They were irate. And they ground their teeth at him. You can see it, can't you? You've been angry before, and someone says to you, what's wrong? And you didn't know why or how they knew you were upset. And it probably had something to do with your jaw, maybe your eyebrows. But that's the image here. They're grinding their teeth at Stephen. And ultimately, at Stephen's God. Verse 55, but he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed, looked intently, looked intently into heaven and saw what? The glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Pay close attention, young worshiper, to that. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, verse 56. And he said, so he saw, then he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. If you were with us last Lord's Day, just a little bit of background perhaps would serve you. Um, If you were not, if you were, again, maybe a little bit of review would serve you. You might remember that Stephen has just preached what is the longest recorded message in the book of Acts. And throughout his sermon, Stephen summarizes the story or the narrative of the Old Testament. He basically tells the story from Abraham to the present day, and he traces God's kindness and God's presence, beginning with Abraham, through Joseph, through Moses, through Joshua, through David, through Solomon, and I'm probably off the camera at this point, aren't I? I'm getting close probably at that point. And then into the present, God has been faithful, Stephen says, to be present with his people and empower his people, to convict his people, and to grant his grace to his people. You might also remember, if you were with us, that one of the the chief accusations that the Jewish leaders leveled against Stephen was that he spoke against the temple. The other accusation was he spoke against the law. Stephen, they argued, and they argued this falsely. Don't miss that. That's in the text. These were false witnesses. I mentioned last Lord's Day that some commentators talk about how, well, he, you know, he, he must have spoken against the law and against the temple in some form or fashion. No, no, the text tells us these are false witnesses. But the false witnesses bore testimony falsely, that Stephen spoke against the law of Moses and against the temple, which was the dwelling place of God among his people at a particular time in Israel's history. And so Stephen tells the story of God dwelling with his people from Abraham on, and he wasn't limited to the temple. This is going to resurface even in our text as we're going to see just in a moment. But then as Stephen comes to the conclusion of his sermon, he does what all good preachers do, right? He addresses the congregation. In his case, this isn't a gathered congregation of believers on the Lord's Day. This is a gathered group of angry Jewish leaders who are about to kill him. And so he preaches as one author described another preacher Much later than Stephen, he preaches as a dying man to dying men with boldness. And he looks into the eyes of the Jewish leaders and he says something like this, just as your forefathers have rejected God, rejected God's message, and rejected God's messengers, so you have brought this rejection to a climax in killing Jesus. God's son. As you might expect. They do not receive this message well. And they are enraged. But notice how Stephen is described in contrast to the Jewish leaders. They are enraged. Verse 55. But Stephen is full of the Holy Spirit. By the way. The irony just continues to surface in the text. And there are a number of ways to describe this, I suppose. It's really not ironic after all. They've accused Stephen of speaking against the temple of God, God's dwelling place. They're going to kill Stephen, who actually is the temple of God, God's dwelling place. Stephen's full of God, the Holy Spirit. And he's gazing into heaven. In other words, what is happening to him or what happens to him on the earth is eclipsed by what he sees expressed as an eternal reality in heaven. It's really quite interesting, isn't it? It's, the language is really similar to uh, the, the early disciples in Acts chapter 1, Luke begins the book of Acts, with the story of Jesus ascending into heaven. And when he ascends into heaven, he does so, of course, after he meets with the disciples. Luke tells us that the disciples stand there gazing into heaven as he went and as he disappears. And the language is the same here. The language is the same. Stephen is gazing into heaven. Now, what does he see? Luke tells us that what he saw was the glory of God and Jesus. The glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, there are a couple of observations I I want to highlight regarding what Stephen sees in heaven. And I think these are informative for us as Bible interpreters and as disciples of Christ. First of all, you need to know this. The glory of God is a way of describing God's presence throughout Scripture. Again, we're continuing in, in the book of Acts. Luke is continuing with this central theme of God's manifest presence among his people. And so the glory of God is used to describe God actually entering into the tabernacle, Exodus chapter 40, whenever the tabernacle is is finished and it's finally been constructed and they erect the tabernacle, put it all together and then we're told that God enters the tabernacle. And the language that is used in Exodus chapter 40 is the glory of God filled the tabernacle. That's the language here. The glory of God. Also, eventually, You know, the tabernacle was the kind of portable temple, mobile temple. You could pick it up, move it. But eventually, God instructed his people through Solomon to build a more permanent temple. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, we learn that as God's glory filled the tabernacle, God's glory filled the temple. Again, that's the language of our text. And so when Stephen sees the glory of God, it's another way of saying he's in God's presence. Again, don't miss this. The Jewish leaders are going to kill Stephen for speaking against the temple. God's dwelling place. But what's actually happening is they are opposing God's temple by opposing God's people who trust in Jesus Christ. And that's what's happening here. And this brings us to a second observation that I want you to see in the text. To see the glory of God is to see Jesus. It's no accident that Luke actually records this in this way. Stephen gazed into heaven or looked intently into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus. And I'm really tempted to say that it's the same thing. It's unpacking, as it were, the Spirit of God is unpacking through Luke what it means to see the glory of God. Stephen saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Listen, listen to the way the Hebrews author describes Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, he, that is Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. We mentioned this last Lord's Day, but we need to say it again. Jesus is presented throughout Acts, especially these first eight chapters or so, as the temple. He is the dwelling place of God among God's people. And then everyone who trusts in Jesus becomes dwelling places or become together the dwelling place of God, as Stephen is in the text. Now, many Christians have speculated about A detail in the text, you might have noticed it. Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Do you see that? If you're familiar with the way Scripture often speaks of Jesus at the right hand of God, Scripture will often describe Jesus not as standing, but as what? Sitting, right? He sits at the right hand of the Father consistently. But in the text, he is described as standing. And I think, actually, this is a kind of playground for me. And uh, there's an early Christian that uses the imagery of a field and he says, basically, you know, you need to stay in the field as you're interpreting these texts. Don't get outside of the field, but if you're in the field, just have fun. And, and you can do that here, I think. I think you can. Um, there are a number of realities demonstrated by Jesus standing a number of realities. So, for example, there are many Christians throughout church history, I think they're right, would argue that when someone comes to your house, what do you do to greet them? You stand up. Right? We had some people over the other day, and, and um, we were standing when they came in. It was important that we be standing when they came in, right? Well, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is they don't typically just walk in. Uh, you have to go and let them in. So I suppose you could crawl to the door. That would be odd. So you stand, don't you? You stand to welcome people into your house. And so it is. Many Christians have recognized that that's precisely what Jesus is doing. The Savior, who once and for all has made atonement for sins and sat down at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, stands to welcome. Stephen into his presence. I think that's right on. It's consistent. We find everywhere throughout Scripture. Others have said, no, it's it's also a demonstration that Christ is at work through Stephen. Stephen is not acting alone. And I think this is right on as well. Actually, what's happening is Christ is working in and through Stephen. Stephen is not facing death. Isolated from his Savior. No, no. As Stephen looks up, he recognizes and sees that the Savior he worships stand to his aid in death. As if to say, you will not face this alone. No wonder Stephen is bold to the end. It is God who is at work in him and through him for God's good pleasure in Christ Jesus. Additionally, and I'll stop with this one, you could add more, please do. You could add more, but additionally, I would, I would suggest to you that, that Jesus stands to indicate just a general solidarity with Stephen. Not only is he working through Stephen, but those who persecute Stephen persecute Jesus. It's Christ they are persecuting, finally. And don't miss this. That we're, gonna, we're jumping ahead here, okay, in Acts. Acts chapter 9, something changes. We're introduced to a man named Saul in our text. I'm getting really ahead of myself right now. We're introduced to a man named Saul, and he plays a chief role in Stephen's death. In fact, we're told that, that the witnesses actually are placing their garments at the feet of Saul, indicating that Saul is overseeing this execution. This Saul will become the apostle Paul. And in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus appears to Saul on the road to Damascus, what does he say when Saul asks the question? No, it's before he asks the question actually, right? He says to Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you? And Jesus says, I am Jesus, the one whom you are persecuting. That's the idea here in the text. It's not Stephen they're persecuting. It's Stephen's Savior. And Christ is going to rescue the one who persecutes him through Stephen. In the next chapter. We'll get there eventually. Not today. But that's good news. That's good news for those of us who recognize that we come into this world in opposition to the Savior, in opposition to God because of our sins, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like you and like me. Well, while none of us in this room, at least, have had the stewardship and privilege of dying as a martyr for Christ as Stephen does in the text. I do think when we talk about one of the reasons why we should willingly suffer for Christ is that in our suffering we see Christ, we can relate to this reality. When we suffer, we are privileged to sense the presence of Christ in a unique way, and even through the eyes of faith, see Christ in a unique way. Isn't it true, Christian? Isn't it true that if you reflect on the ways in which Christ has caused you to grow in Christ-likeness or those seasons during which you, you grew spiritually, isn't it often true that those are seasons characterized by suffering? I know it's terrifying to say it out loud sometimes, but it's true, isn't it? Suffering is employed in the kindness and grace of Christ to grant us a more robust sight of Christ. I can think back on various times I grew in my understanding of Christ and and my worship of Christ. and You might even say in seeing Christ through the lens of faith. And those were seasons often not characterized by prosperity. Often not characterized by comfort. In fact, more times than not characterized by pain, and loss, and suffering. And God in his mercy was working these things together for my eternal good, conforming me to the image of Jesus Christ, his son. And that's precisely what's happening in the text. So that's the first reason why we should willingly suffer for Christ because in our suffering, we see Christ. Second, I mentioned this one to you a moment ago. We'll unpack it together. Second, in our suffering, we imitate Christ. Notice how Luke describes the death of Stephen. At the conclusion of chapter 7, verses 57 through 60, but they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears as if to say they're not listening to anything he's saying. They're refusing to listen. They're obstinate and rebellious to the message Stephen is preaching. So they stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. By the way, This language of rushing together, it's the same language used to describe the unity of the church throughout the book of Acts. Luke wants us to see that as the church exists in unity, so often does the world exist in unity in opposition to the church. And we see it right here in the text. So they rushed together at him, verse 58. Then they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We mentioned that a moment ago. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So as I mentioned, the second reason we should willingly suffer for Christ is that in our suffering, we imitate Christ. And actually, this reason is related to the first reason. After all, it is in seeing Christ that Stephen reflects Christ. Don't miss that order. First, Stephen looks up. He gazes into heaven, and what does he see? He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Then, he's privileged to imitate Christ, the one he sees through faith. I want you to notice the ways Stephen imitates Jesus as he dies. You may have picked up on some of these already. First of all, Stephen was falsely accused. We're we're bringing in some of the texts from last Lord's Day together. He was falsely accused, and he was tried just as Jesus Christ was tried before the Jewish council. Secondly, Stephen was taken out of the city. They rushed upon him and they thrust him outside of the city, which is precisely what happened to Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. Christ goes outside of the gate, outside of the city to die on the cross. Additionally, third, in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, now remember, the human author of Acts is the human author of Luke. Luke 23, verse 46, Jesus prayed these words on the cross, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Remember this? Now look at Acts chapter 7, verse 59. Stephen prays to Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. A very similar prayer to the prayer offered by Christ in Luke 23. And then finally, notice... In Luke 23, verse 34, Jesus prayed for his accusers. He prayed this prayer. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. So one of, one of Christ's final prayers for his accusers was a request for forgiveness. Forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Well, notice Acts 7, verse 60. Stephen prays something similar, doesn't he? His final prayer is what? Lord, Do not hold this sin against them. What's happening? Christ suffered once and for all, as Peter said, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Stephen has seen Christ risen and ascended, standing at the right hand of the Father. And it's the sight of Christ that transforms him into the image of Christ. And he's dying just as his Savior died. This is perhaps one of the most compelling reasons for the believer in Jesus Christ. To willingly suffer for Christ. Because in our suffering, we have the eternal privilege of reflecting the one who suffered and died in our place and for our sins. The one who was buried, the one who on the third day was raised bodily from the dead in glorious power, the one who appeared to many, the one who ascended into heaven and sits and sometimes stands at the right hand of the Father, the one who will someday come back to this earth to receive us into his presence. For those of us who have come to know and treasure Jesus Christ, it is an eternal privilege to imitate him. I have, I have three children, and this is, this is especially the case when the children are younger, but I would argue that it's the case throughout the child's life, even into adulthood. One of, one of the somewhat natural desires of a child is to imitate their father, or to imitate their mother, to imitate their parents. And this is, of course, also why the the adage, do as I say, not as I do, doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It's an impoverished view of parenting. No, no, they will do as you do, often. And there are a whole host of reasons for that. And of course, we need to account for God's grace intervening in their lives as God's grace has intervened in our life. Nevertheless, in a family, isn't it amazing how we just tend to act like one another? And so it is with our spiritual family. As we come to treasure Jesus Christ, we come to reflect Jesus Christ more and more. And this is really what it means to be a follower of Christ, to live as Christ lived, to suffer as Christ suffered, even to die as Christ died. In hope that as Christ was raised from the dead, so we will be raised bodily when he returns. And friends, I should say this at this point, that you may be here this morning and, and not be someone who has authentically come to treasure Jesus. It may be that you've heard all about Christ, but you've never actually surrendered yourself to Jesus Christ. You've never actually come to grips with the reality that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And it's so much more than just like intellectually recognizing that Jesus died on the cross or intellectually recognizing that he was raised from the dead. It's so much more than that that you come to grips with this reality is imperative That the death and resurrection of Jesus demands your life, your soul, your all. And that's biblical faith. And so this morning, if you've not given yourself freely to Christ in response to his mercy and his grace and the work of the Spirit of God, even through you this morning, then we invite you to do that. Embrace Christ this morning. Give yourself to Christ. Come to recognize that he is the eternal treasure that satisfies, that he's worthy of everything you have and infinitely more. And if you'd like to talk more about this, we would love to visit. We would love to talk with you and even come alongside of you. After the service, one of the ways you can do that is as you're leaving and before you exit this building is that room I mentioned in the welcome a moment ago called the Crossroads. It's clearly identified just above the entrance. If you'll go in there, there'll be an elder in that room after service who would love to talk with you. You can ask questions about what it means to follow Jesus Christ. This elder would love to pray with you. We would love to come alongside of you and even you alongside of us as we learn to treasure and serve this risen Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, Stephen, Stephen is privileged to embrace what we could call The apex of Christian discipleship. Martyrdom. Dying bodily for Christ. The early church called this becoming a disciple. Becoming a disciple. In fact, one early martyr in the second century is on his way to Rome and he wrote a series of letters. He's a pastor. And on his way to Rome, he writes a letter to Rome, the Roman church. And he tells the Roman church, don't prevent this. Why? He says, I want to be a disciple of Christ. He even says it this way. I don't simply want to be called a Christian. I want to be a Christian. And he does, that exactly. He goes to Rome, and he gives up his life and enters into the presence of Christ, I suspect. In a similar way, Christ is standing when Ignatius of Antioch dies to receive Ignatius into his presence. Well, this is Stephen in the text, and this, by the way, continues to happen even now. Just last year, I had the, I had the privilege, it really was a privilege, of attending the funeral at Temple Baptist here locally of a believer who gave up his life as a martyr for Christ. I didn't know the man. Um, some of you did and because I, I found out from some of you about him. But when I heard about the funeral, I thought to myself, I don't get many opportunities to go to the funeral of a martyr. And I was eager to go This still happens and will continue to happen until Jesus Christ returns. The apex of discipleship is giving our lives away to serve Christ. Now, the reality is this. Most of us will not experience martyrdom in that way. Not likely. I mean, if history teaches us anything, it's not that every single Christian actually experiences martyrdom in the way that Stephen experienced martyrdom. However, although most of us will not suffer martyrdom, Christ calls every one of us to die in other ways, without exception. Following Christ means giving up our lives, it means giving up our ambitions. Church family, that's death. That is death. When I came to know Jesus, I was on a path, and I had a goal, right? There was even a career in my mind. This isn't the case for everyone. Sometimes the Lord redeems, and he employs that already existing career and service to Christ, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. But in my case, this was the career path, and I came to know Jesus, and this is what he did. And off I went, by God's grace, he interrupted my ambitions. My aspirations, my career choice. As you might imagine, before I was a believer in Jesus Christ, I didn't anticipate becoming a senior pastor. It's not the way it typically works. No, coming to Jesus Christ demands a death. It may be a death like Stephen. It may be the death of our dreams we had prior to coming to Christ. It may be that as a follower of Jesus Christ, we're holding on to dreams that need to die. Because as Paul says, we die Daily. And isn't it true? That's what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9 when he describes discipleship. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. It's as Martin Luther said in the 16th century, repentance is not this once and for all activity of the believer. No, it characterizes the life of the Christian. We are repenting daily of our own ambitions, repenting daily of our own dreams and aspirations, repenting daily of clinging to self and self-aggrandizement and prestige and honor. And daily we are called by Christ in mercy to die. I even thought recently as a a parent, Ted and I were joking about something and it, it caused a spiritual thought by God's mercy in my mind. Uh, That's not always the case, by the way. Um, but we were joking about, you know, having, having children, if, if you don't know this, it costs a lot of money. Um, and it's worth it. It's worth it. It costs a lot of money. And, uh, and we were joking about, you know, wow. Uh, of course, you know, you, you that have adult children are like, oh, just wait, buddy, um, and that's okay, just let me be naive a little longer, please. <laughs> Stop ruining all the fun and anticipation. Uh, but we were joking about, you know, maybe, maybe someday we'll have, uh, we'll have extra. That'll be a joy to have extra. And you were joking, as parents do, and, but it caused me to think about this, and probably because I was preparing for this, this sermon, I thought, Lord, what a privilege. Parenting is a call to die. And so we die financially. (laughs) We joke, we we laugh to keep from crying. It's okay. But this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus, right? Some of you are new parents in the room. Congratulations. (laughs) It is an opportunity to follow Jesus, right? Who suffered for you that you might follow in his steps. And we laugh and we joke, but we mean it. Father, mother, your call is simple. Die for your children. Die for them. Husband, wife, die for your spouse. Friend, die for your friendships. Church member, die for your church. We're Baptists. We have members meetings. We vote. Some of us die on a regular basis. And that's a kindness of Christ. Let's die together so that in Christ we might live eternally. That's Christ's call through Stephen. Martyrdom, maybe. Maybe some of us in the room will receive the unique stewardship and the unique grace. And I don't say this lightly to give up our lives in the way Stephen gave up his life. It may happen, but what will happen and does happen is that Christ calls us to come and die. And that's what we find in the text. And that in dying, we see Christ and we imitate Christ. And then third, we need to come close to an end at this point. I said close to an end. I didn't say an end. Keep that in mind, right? Third, why should we willingly suffer for Jesus Christ? Because in our suffering, we spread the word of Christ. In our suffering, we spread the word of Christ. Look with me at chapter 8, verse 1. We won't look at all the details in these first few verses. This will resurface a number of times, but chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Now, don't miss this detail. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The egregious murder of Stephen was an awful sin committed by the Jewish leaders against Stephen, against the early church, and against God, ultimately. However, it was a part of God's plan. Plan to do what? Plan to spread the gospel to the nations. Don't miss that in the text. It's subtle initially. Remember how Acts began. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said this, but you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Remember this? Where? In Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, don't miss that. In Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, look again at what we just read. Acts 8, verse 1 There arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. What is God doing? He's scattering the church to spread the gospel through suffering. Don't miss this. What the enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. And this is always the case when God's people suffer Always the case. And then glance down glance down at chapter 8, verse 4. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag here. For next Lord's Day, we're going to get, get to verse 4, but I'm going to mention it right now. Acts chapter 8, verse 4. What does the text say? Now those who were scattered went about what? Preaching the word. Boy, this backfired, didn't it? On the Jewish leaders. I know what we'll do. We'll just start persecuting them. They won't stop talking about this Jesus that they claim suffered in their place, died and was raised from the dead. We'll just start killing people and imprisoning people and we'll terrify them and they'll be scattered throughout all the world. And in God's power, they'll take the gospel throughout all the world. And the church eventually, by the way, by the fourth century, the church will take over the Roman Empire. There are a whole host of things we could say about that, but nevertheless, God was at work through the suffering of his people to spread the word of Christ. Tertullian, I've mentioned a few early church people this morning, and, and uh, I've, I'm probably over my quota at this point, all right? Um, my allowance. So indulge me. Um... I'm borrowing from next week, okay? Tertullian, second century Christian apologist and theologian. He wrote this in a defense. He wrote an apology, which is a defense of Christianity. And uh, he said these words, the more often we are mown down by you, the more in number we grow. And then he made this famous statement, the blood of Christians is seed. Seed. Seed, S-E-E-D. The blood of Christians is seed. And God is using every bit of suffering we endure, as Tertullian says, to spread the word of Christ to the nations. Now, I do want to say this. This is a couple of things. And then maybe a hymn in closing, okay? I'm not going to sing it. I'll just say it. There are a couple of categories of suffering that I think we need to be aware of, and they both apply if we think about application of this text and the spreading of the word of Christ. The first is suffering we experience because we are Christians, and that's, that's more immediately related to the text. Stephen is, is suffering because of his faith in Christ. We call this persecution, and that's, that's real. It happens today. It will continue to happen. By the way, church, it will continue to happen until Jesus returns. What makes us think that a disciple is greater than his master, we will never establish a society in which Christians will never be persecuted. Never. Never. Notice I said, we won't establish that society. There will be one established. It's been established, it will be brought to fruition when Christ returns. But We got to settle into this reality. There is suffering that we experience because we are Christian, and that's what Stephen is enduring in the text. And again, while we may not experience martyrdom, we will experience loss of friendships. Dear Christian, you will lose friends because you are a Christian. And you can still love those friends. But loving them well will probably be one of the reasons you lose them as friends. And that's okay. And when it happens, you will have lost a friend for the sake of Christ. And you can rejoice because your reward in heaven is great. As you see Christ and imitate Christ, spreading the word of Christ. Younger Worshippers, those of you middle school, upper school, you will have to choose between Jesus Christ and acceptance by others, by your peers. Maybe I should say it this way. You have to choose that daily. And may God give you the grace to make the right decision to choose the infinite worth and treasure of Christ over the applause of your friends. But we will suffer as Christians. It is inevitable. Absolutely inevitable. I won't speculate right now about what it might look like in the future, but I do suspect, I will tell you this, I suspect that we are on a trajectory where this will increase. But fear not. For this is how they treated your master. So rejoice. Rejoice when it happens to you. Sure, let's speak out against it. But do so in love and humility and patience. Saying things like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Lord Jesus, do not hold this sin against them. They don't understand what they're doing. That's the posture Of the believer suffering as a believer because he or she is a believer. But there's this second and more general suffering we experience, not because we are Christian, but because we live in a fallen world. And this is just the kind of suffering we all experience. But what makes our experience of what we might call general suffering different from others is not the presence of the suffering, but the way we endure the suffering. It's how we respond in God's grace. To the suffering. For example, believers and unbelievers alike experience cancer. Believers and unbelievers alike experience sickness, the loss of loved ones, emotional trials, death. However, as Christians, we are distinguished not by the experience, but our response to the experience. It's one thing, isn't it, to receive a cancer diagnosis. It's another thing, it's another thing altogether to undergo treatment, pain, sickness, maybe chemotherapy, radiation, maybe other forms of treatment with faith, hope, and love by God's grace. It's one thing to lose a loved one, isn't it? But unbelievers experience this. It's another thing altogether to grieve as someone who has hope. Hope in Christ's return. It's one thing to be hospitalized. It's another thing to use your hospitalization to bear witness for Christ, which by the way, I just even recently the other day, there was a brother in the hospital from our church and that's precisely what he was doing. In immense pain and having conversations with people about Christ. In his suffering, he was spreading the word of Christ as he saw Christ and as he imitated Jesus Christ. And so I want to commend you, church family, and encourage you. This is precisely what many of you are doing. And one of the privileges I have alongside of other staff pastors is to watch this happen and be encouraged by this. So keep in mind, you will suffer because you are a Christian. And when that happens, rejoice and be glad as you're following in the steps of Jesus Christ, who suffered in your place to bring you to God. But there will be other times when you suffer for no other reason than you live in a fallen world. But even that is a stewardship. It's a gift. Not that you are suffering, but how you might suffer and suffer well for the glory of Jesus Christ. Well, we should wrap up now. Isaac Watts wrote some of the best hymns, in my opinion, in Christian history. Uh, We need more men and women like Isaac Watts. And he summarized following Jesus Christ as the willingness to suffer loss for Christ's sake. And in this one particular hymn that I'm going to quote to you, part of it anyway, He's reflecting on the challenge of actually believing that we're going to enter heaven with ease and comfort. Here's what he says, and we'll close with this. In his hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? He writes, Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb, and shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas. Thy saints in all this glorious war shall conquer, though they die. That's good news, Christian. They see the triumph from afar. By faith they bring it nigh. And then we'll close with this bit. When that illustrious day shall rise and all thy armies shine in robes of victory through the skies, the glory shall be thine. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are privileged to receive the comfort of knowing that our suffering is never wasted in this life. You are employing all forms of suffering for your children through Christ for the purpose of causing us to see Christ more clearly, to imitate Christ more faithfully, and to spread the word of Christ more passionately. Oh God, do this in our lives. Do this in our church. Grant us the privilege of enduring in faith, hope, and love to the end, just as Stephen, your servant, endured. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray these things together. Amen.